This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everyone. It's October the 22nd, 2021. It's rather late in the day. It's uh, early afternoon in California. We're late today because of Comcast. We can always blame Comcast for something. This time my internet was down all morning, so we had to delay the show, but we got a really good one today. A um, few months ago, uh, I interviewed um, a guy uh, a guy called uh, Connor Town O'Neill. Uh, he has an interesting new book out, uh, Down... Uh, along with uh, that uh, devil's bones. It's a book about tearing down history, a book about bringing the statues of, of racism down in the South. And at the end, I asked uh, Connor wh who I should talk to next, what kind of book uh, would be good to discuss in the context of some of the things he was writing about. And he strongly suggested um, a book called A Place Like Mississippi by W. Uh, Ralph Eubanks, What's interesting about a place like Mississippi, there are many things about a place like Mississippi that's interesting, but what's particularly interesting uh, in the context of uh, O'Connor uh, O'Neill's book, Down Along With That Devil's Bones, is that this book, more than anything else, is a book about memory. It's a book about the value of memory as opposed to forgetting. It's a book, above all else, of course, about the South and about Mississippi as the the parable, the paragon, the, uh, the, the, the place that represents everything that's good and bad about the South. Uh, and I'm thrilled that its author, W. Uh, Ralph Eubanks, I'm going to call him Ralph from now on, is joining me from Columbus, Mississippi, where he is uh, attending a conference. Uh, Ralph, a place like Mississippi, there are no other places like Mississippi, are there? There's only one place like Mississippi. There is only one place like Mississippi, but I do have to quote Malcolm X, who famously said that everything south of the Canadian border is Mississippi. Yeah, I love that quote in the book. Um, do you agree with him? I do. And I, I think the, the point that he was trying to make is that so often we ascribe certain characteristics to the American South. We essentialize the South, whereas the things that are the issues of the South are the issues of the nation. We just like to try to compartmentalize it. We like to think of the South almost like a foreign country. And it's it's not. It's definitely a part of a part of America. And you know, I think we often think of Southern writers as kind of in their own genre as well. And I, uh, while I do think of myself as a Southern writer and I'm writing about Southern writers, I th I'd also like for us to begin to think about these Southern writers as also American writers, particularly yeah. with William Faulkner. You have a couple of other great quotes about Mississippi. The the great Nina Simone said, everybody knows about Mississippi, goddamn. And Faulkner, again, another of uh, the people who have defined Mississippi, wrote, to understand the world, you have to understand a place like Mississippi. You think Faulkner is right? I think Faulkner is right. And uh, I actually have to 
to say this is that um, that has been ascribed to Faulkner. But what I found out in my research, right, is, right, you know that it, it may not have even been Faulkner who said this. It was it was Willie Morris who thought Faulkner should have said it. I often say, you know, Willie Morris was you know Mississippi writer, youngest editor of Harper's Magazine, but he was also a prankster. So I often say that Willie Morris is prank calling us from the grave by having us, you know, bring that quote up over and over again. But Willie was right. Faulkner should have said that because you do understand a lot about the world from Mississippi. And I think what Willie did is he, in a nutshell, told you something about Faulkner's body of work, that he understood Mississippi because he understood Mississippi, what, and he also understood the human heart, he understood the world. The book, uh, the subtitle of the book is A Journey Through a Real and Imagined Literary Landscape from Faulkner and Welty to Wright and Ward. Uh, it's a book about geography, though, or perhaps um, here we have a map of, of Mississippi, uh, but it's a literary map, uh, and you 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 make geography um, literature. Is that fair, or is that what you were trying to do, Ralph, in the book? I would say that I was I was trying I was trying to think about this this confluence of geography, literature, and memory, and also using what I, I tell people that I did for this book is that I'm, I'm someone who works in an archive a lot. I spent yesterday in an archive over in Starkville, Mississippi. But when you're writing about this confluence of geography, place, and memory, you're creating your own archive. You're going around and you are thinking about place as this archive. So I went to specific places that Mississippi writers wrote about and try to imagine what it was that they saw there and then looking at their own body of work and seeing what was reflected there. I think the great example I often like to use of that experience was reading Ann Moody's memoir, Coming of Age in Mississippi, and traveling through the county down the road that is now named for her and finding the site of a pond where they got their water that she mentions in her book. And by just reading her book and her description of place, I could find that spot that she talked about, even though the shack is now gone that she lived in. But I knew from reading those words and from the description exactly where it was. I have the book here. You are very generous to send it to me. Um, we always, as writers, as publishers, as people in the book business, we always talk about the importance of the visual in a book. But it's very rare to have a book so rich in wonderful photography as this book. And you write also about this confusion or confluence of photography and literature. Did you have to fight for those photos in the book? Because it's a beautiful book. It's, it's in some ways as much a, a book of photography as it is of writing, although your writing in it is also magnificent. Well, thank you. Well, I didn't have to fight for the photos. Originally, the, the book was to include 150 photographs. After my editor reviewed the text, he felt that that was going to overwhelm the text. So we cut it down to 100. And I actually ended up selecting from 300 photographs to whittle it down to that 100. And my guide for that is a book I often teach in my 
classes in Southern studies at the University of Mississippi, it's called by Jeffrey Dyer called the ongoing moment. And yeah, we've had Dyer actually on the show. Jeff Dyer is a wonderfully creative, erudite, lightly erudite British writer. Yes, well, well, he you know he talks about this peculiar alchemy between the visual and the verbal, and that's what I was really trying to get to with this book is that idea that that Dyer um, talks about in the ongoing moment to for the reader to read the text and see some of that reflected in the visual rather than something just kind of there representing something. I wanted it to actually be evocative in some way and actually, I guess, really meld with the text. And Welty herself, of course, was also a very uh, accomplished photographer. So her, her writing and her photography naturally go together. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the interesting things about Eudora Welty is she never really wrote you know, had a photograph in front of her and wrote from it, which is very often what I will do is I'll have, you know, photographs in front of me as I'm writing to kind of figure out memory. No, that stuff was in her head. And she created character from these, these things that she captured with the shutter. But there was also that idea of memory that was, that was part of it as well. And, you know, I was just giving a talk about, this book and about Welty last night, because uh, I'm here for the Eudora Welty Writers Symposium. And I, I thought about that idea that she talks about of how our various journeys converge. And, and for me, my, you know, my journey as a writer really converged with, with Welty's through those photographs. And it was through those photographs that led me deeper into her writing. Faulkner's always been a a dodgy character on lots of fronts. Uh, we, we, uh, we've talked in the show before about how some of his language has been appropriated, if that's the right word, by racists and people in favor of the Confederacy. Um, I, I wonder uh, if, if Faulkner had been an, as accomplished um, a photographer as Welty, do you think we'd have known more about him? Do you think he would be a more straightforward character? Um, you know, it's interesting. Faulkner was a photographer. Oh, he um, was? He was a photographer, um, but never really published his photos. But I think we would be, Faulkner really wanted to be known for his words. And I, and, and I think that's the big difference between he and Welty. I know that uh, a lot of you know, writers, um, scholars really think that in some ways Faulkner overshadows Welty, and that perhaps may be true. But I would say that Faulkner and Welty are, are truly equals. There are so many things. That, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Faulkner because Faulkner, I think, helped me understand the place where I was from. I'm a person who who's lived my entire almost my entire adult life outside of the South. I am the most unlikely person to be called a Southern writer. Um, that's what my, one of my college friends said to me. He said, you know, you're the, the person in our class that I never would have thought would have had that label Southern writer because you read 
the Victorians. You were a big fan of Henry James and Virginia Woolf. You were, you were really a British literature guy. And now you write about the South. And I think something strange comes over you in middle age when you leave the place you're from, you're exiled from it, and you're trying to reclaim it in some way. Um, and that's probably what happened with me with um, in my mid 40s is coming back to Mississippi and beginning to write about this place. And that's what I've been doing uh, ever since. Right, of course, is is, is an also an, an a remarkably important uh, literary son of, of Mississippi. What did you learn about him from writing this book? Um, I'm sure you already knew a great deal about him before before the writing. Well, I will tell you one thing that I really learned from this book, working on this book, is I thought about his, his novel, The Long Dream, which is set in Mississippi, was published in 1958. Um, it's not Wright's most successful novel, but it's one that when I read, I really wish that as he was writing that book, he had returned to Mississippi rather than writing that from Paris. And I think if he had returned to Mississippi, that novel would have had taken a different shape. And, uh, and it's something, it's almost like an object lesson to me. I'm, I'm on a fellowship right now uh, at Harvard, I'm writing about the Mississippi Delta from Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's very strange. Uh, I have to come back to Mississippi to, to kind of refresh myself, to know what it, what it is I'm actually writing about before I go back into the archive. And I wish that that's the one thing I learned about Wright. I wish he had come back at some point. Um, but I also know in 1958, that would have been a very dangerous thing for him to do. And emotionally a difficult thing. Who, who do you think has withstood the, the winds of change, the best from Faulkner and Welty or Wright? Who's withstood the winds of change the best? Oh, gosh, that's a very good question. I'm thinking about Mississippi writers. And I guess you could throw in Richard Ford, although he's more contemporary. I think Richard Ford would, would um, and I, I know Richard, Richard uh, would never really think of himself as a Southern writer. He th he's, I'm from Mississippi, but I don't, he says, I well, don't. you remind us in the book that he grew up on the same street as, as, as Welty, which is, yes. I don't know, that's remarkable. Two, two Nobel Prize winning writers growing up on the same street in a small town in Mississippi. That in itself justifies Mississippi as the center of the universe. <laughs> it does. But I guess, you know, who's really endured? And for me, it's Faulkner. And... And Faulkner looms large in Mississippi's literary imagination. But I think Faulkner, you know, as I say that, I also have to say that Faulkner's shadow covers up a lot of literary greatness that exists in Mississippi. I think about the writer Ellen Douglas, whose story on the lake I mentioned in a place like Mississippi. It is a stunning piece of work. Uh, and I, I wish more people read the work of of Ellen Douglas. Um, other writers, I mean, I think about Brad Watson, um, who sadly died too young, um, died about 18 months ago, but has this body of work that really characterizes East Mississippi, which is where I am right now. This is kind of like his landscape that I'm sitting in. Um, 
And of course, I have to say Tennessee Williams, whose birthplace is in Columbus, Mississippi, where I am right now. Uh, although, you know, Williams, his, his landscape, his literary landscape was really the Delta. And when I talk about, you know, Williams, I talk about him more in the context of the Delta than I do of East Mississippi. Uh, I think that he saw something in the Delta that really affected him creatively. It was the people of the Delta. That's where he, that's where he developed all of his characters are from these people of the Delta and they're real characters in the Delta. As I tell people all the time, the, you know, everyone says, well, why aren't you a fiction writer? And I always say, well, I don't need to be a fiction writer because there are great stories in Mississippi that are true, that nobody talks. And all I have to do is kind of, you know, probe the silences and find out the, the things that people Well, this do. probing of the silences, you, you talk about silence and the silent quality of Mississippi. There's a, a silent quality to your writing too, uh, Ralph, I thought. I mean, it's not silent, but it's quiet and authoritative. Very different from a lot of the other writing, particularly these days on race and identity and the terrible crimes of white America against black Americans. Uh, did you set out to write a, a quiet book about a noisy subject, a noisy place like Mississippi? Um, I can't say that that I do, but I will. I will say this: my um, my goal with my my writing about about the South, and even subjects that I'm angry about, is I I hope and I. I that I accomplish this is I want to be this clarifying force that helps people understand the South. There are lots of people who, when you, you know, uh, say you're from the South, when I went to the university of Michigan in 1978, everybody said, you poor thing from Mississippi. I got so tired of, of hearing that. And I guess maybe that's what's driving this work is that I want people to see this place with some clarity and understanding and maybe not with the anger is not going to get people to to see it but it's going to get them i want them to see that there is this is a place that's marked by violence um and that's uh, and and you, you write a lot about m much violence medgar evans is murder of course is a particularly horrifying example of that violence Yes, and there's, I mean, you, you can't talk about Mississippi without talking about that violence. I mean, I know that someone um, wrote about this book that they felt that I focused a little too much on race. It's interesting. You think of it as being quiet, but some people think that it's a little too noisy about that because I see this this violence on the landscape and I want to pay attention to it and I want others to pay attention to it What, as what well. do you, uh, Ralph, I had Maisha Cherry, very interesting polemicist, political theorist, South California-based theorist uh, on the show earlier this week who believes that we should, we, African-Americans in particular, should legitimize the idea of rage um, in terms of responding to the profound injustices both of the past and of the present. I also had Randall Kennedy on the show, the Harvard law uh, professor, uh, not born in Mississippi. Um, and I think he was born in South Carolina. Again, a man who's dedicated his life to writing about racial injustice, who I think is more ambivalent about legitimizing rage. 
were there or are there Mississippi writers who who write intelligently about rage without being too rageful themselves? Kiese Lehman. Kiese is, I will tell you, I every time I read Kiese Lehman's work, I learn something. He does make you feel that rage, but he also makes you think. He doesn't want you just to have rage. He wants you to understand why you feel that way. You may not be shouting out in the streets, but he wants that inside and he wants you to do something about it. Uh, a great example of that is I heard Casey talk about the Mississippi state flag before this, the flag was changed. He said that flag's gonna be changed one day, but I want you all to think about this. When it's gone, that's just the beginning and don't get complacent there's still work to be done. So Kiese calls attention to the fact that this struggle for black freedom, black legitimacy, whatever you want to call it, it's a constant struggle. And I'm, you know, I'm 64 years old. I'm a child of the, you know, school integration. I'm a child of the civil rights movement. And I think what my generation lost sight of was that constant struggle. And Kiese really makes that so clear. And, and he, people listen to him. He takes that rage and frames it in a way that makes you listen. You don't turn away and say, I can't listen to him. He's like, no, you need to pay attention. And that's what I really admire about his work. Um, and he does it in a way that I, I could never do it. Um, you introduced me to the work of Jasmine Ward. I have to admit, I, I'm, my show is on nonfiction, and I, I can't claim to be a, uh, really that literary person, especially when it comes to the, the literature of the American South. But I was particularly intrigued with your section on Ward. She, I haven't read any of her books, but she sounds like a remarkable writer. Oh, she is a remarkable writer. And, and what she's both a great fiction writer and a great memoirist. And she is, I mean, we're, I mean, I was talking, you're talking to me about this idea of probing the silences. That's what Jasmine does so well. Not only does she the silences, she writes about the people who silenced is even more important. I think that's something I really learned from, from reading Jasmine is you want to, in your work, particularly as you're writing about the South, um, try to give voice to those who have been silenced. And she's thinking about the black, the poor, um, those who have been disenfranchised. And she does that from her- She's you know, exploring, to, you, to, to borrow some language from you, she's exploring, she's exploring the silences. She is exploring the silences. And that's what really, um, you know, makes her work so powerful. And it's interesting, you know, Natasha Trethewey is from that same landscape. And what she also does in thinking about the Native Guard, the, you know, the Black soldiers during the Civil War who guarded white prisoners on Ship Island and Gulfport, Mississippi, how her work brought attention to their existence. I grew up going to Ship Island as a kid. I never knew about them. And again, what you know, 
Natasha did through her poetry is she's given voice to those people who have been silenced. And that's a, that's a real, um, it's a real gift for a writer to, to be able to do that. And, and I feel very fortunate to have gotten to know those two writers and to, um, to be in their presence. Uh, and thinking about Jessamine and why she stays in Mississippi, you know, someone who's won the National Book Award twice. Why would you still live in the same community you grew up in? But Unlike she, you, 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 you ran, <laughs> I don't know if you ran away, but you left. Are you, do you ever have doubts about leaving, Ralph? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I do tell people that when you do, when you become an expatriate, you live with a constant uh, sense of exile. But that sense of exile is also the lens through which I look at the state that I'm writing about, that I, that I look at the South through that lens of exile. It allows me to, you know, to, since I live in Mississippi nine months out of the year while I'm teaching at the University of Mississippi, it allows me some closeness to it, but I also keep some distance from my subject so I can write objectively and try it once again, as I said, to be this clarifying force that writes about these, these places that I think are sometimes misunderstood, shrouded in mythology, uh, and also essentialized. You know, we, we think we can boil down the South or Mississippi to three different things, or people who like to say there's no difference between Mississippi and Alabama or Georgia. It's all the same. There's a lot of differences. And, I, and, and that's I, where the Faulkner clicks in even, isn't it, really? It really I mean, Whatever is, you say about Faulkner, that's his job. That's his business in... In, in making things more mysterious, more complicated than than uh, some people think they are. Yeah, I, I mean, I think he brings some some mystery, but also some clarity to it. And well, I, it's and, the sort of clarity of complexity, if that's the right way of putting it. Yes, and and you know, it's and it's so funny. You know, now that I'm you know spending a year in Cambridge, Massachusetts, one of the places that I walk across every day is the Anderson Memorial Bridge, which uh, is a scene from Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. It's the, the bridge that his character, Quentin Compson, jumps to his death from. And, and it's one of those reminders to me to, as a Southerner who's spending time in the Northeast, to stay connected to the place, but also, you know, maintain a little bit of objective distance from it as I, as I write about it. Right, and I think that's what you do. One person who certainly never heard of Mississippi, the word, the place, the concept, was the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. But you quote him in the book. Uh, Heraclitus said, geography is fate. Um, or I think Ralph Ellison. Um, Ralph, Ralph Ellison quotes him, and, and that's... So, so, so we get this through Ralph Ellison, who, of course, had heard of Mississippi. The book... And, and I want to do the book justice because it's a really wonderful book, Ralph. It's not just about books. It's not just about writers. It's about places, too. And reading the book, may, I've just married a woman from Mississippi, but I've actually um, I've driven through it many years ago. I've never spent much time there. It made me want to visit Natchez and Vicksburg and Columbus and all these other towns. You really bring the state 
to life, the geography, the real geography. Now, we've had lots of shows about the death of geography, digital culture, but geography is very much alive in, in Mississippi, isn't it? It is because these um, Mississippi is a series of small towns. And I think that's what, why that geography comes like. We don't have a really large city. I mean, that's a big difference between Mississippi and Alabama. Alabama has, has Birmingham, Huntsville. Mobile. I have to joke, Ralph, that I'm not sure. I lived in Birmingham for a couple of years. I would never call Birmingham a, a large city, but that's well, my humor. I know, I know. But, but yeah, work with me on this, Andrew. Yeah, Atla it's, it's, Atlanta is a big city. I accept that. Atlanta is a big city, but Mississippi is a series of small towns. And we're all kind of connected through these various small towns. And therein lies Mississippi's um, allure, is these little places that, that there is this intimate life that people live in them. And a lot of people stay there for generations. I'm kind of the I'm kind of the rare person who I'm, who's gotten out, even though Mississippi has a bit of a, a brain drain right now. But I think the reason I left is I'm the child of two Alabamians who lived in who ended up in Mississippi. That's why the dedication to my book is to my parents, two Alabamians who made me a Mississippian. And I'm here in Columbus, Mississippi, just about a mile from where they're both buried. Uh, so there, you know, Mississippi is where they're buried, but where, if you ask them, you know, what their identity was, they would say they were Alabamians and they, they felt that, that difference. And Mississippi has, um, this hold on people. It, it had a hold on my father. Um, even though he was from Alabama, when he moved to the Mississippi Delta in 1949, he never wanted to leave. But the violence that bubbled up there in the aftermath of the Emmett Till murder led my family to leave the Delta. And, but I know that that's one of his lifetime great regrets was having and to And is that not going from the, as, 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 as the cliche goes, going from the frying pan into the fire, <laughs> going from, yeah, you know, to, to avoid racial violence, going from Alabama to Mississippi? It really is. And then, and then what do my parents do? They, they don't move north. They just move to South Mississippi, a place with a black landowning tradition. So that's, I mean, it's, so my, my parents were very much identified as Southerners. And, and I think that's for a black person of my generation, when we talked about Southern identity, Southern identity was often conflated with whiteness. And that's what happened when I was at the University of Mississippi and I studied the agrarians and their, you know, their, you know, polemic, I'll take my stand, which is a, which is really about, you know, white literature and white supremacy. And, and I realized if that's what the South is about, I'm out of here. And when I left and went to the University of Michigan in 1978, I didn't look back. Um, but I ended up back here. I mean, the, the reason I'm, uh, I'm, you know, my friends are so surprised that I'm back here is that, that they knew that when I left that I would never be back. But here I am. Um, you know, well, everyone returns one way or the other, Ralph, and especially you, you, to Mississippi. Yeah, uh, you return, I usually quote Bob Dylan in as many shows as I can. He, of course, spoke in a very interesting way about Mississippi. Um, 
Finally, um, for people like myself who haven't spent much time there, what's the first town or two towns that you would you would advise people, people with a, a literary sensibility and interest in politics and injustice? Where, where, where should you go first? Where's the gateway place for Mississippi? Oh, gosh, it's a really good question. The gateway place, I would have to say, is Jackson. And I would start in Jackson. Um, I would go to the Medgar Evers house. So you can see this house that he custom built for himself without a front door for his own protection. You know, visit the Civil Rights Museum there. See the home of Eudora Welty. Um, you know, visit the Margaret Walker archives at Jackson State University, an amazing archive of African-American literature and history. Uh, and then the next place I would go is Oxford. Um, seeing, because what you can do by going on the grounds of Roanoke, it's the only spot in Oxford that I think is frozen in time. It's frozen in 1962. And that's a, you're, you, enter that little time capsule. And then when you're there, you can go out into Oxford itself and imagine what it would have been like during Falkland's time. So those would be the two places that I would say, both Jackson and Oxford. And then once you're in Oxford, you know, branching into the Delta and make that trip, don't forget to make the trip down to the Gulf Coast. Well, in these COVID times, some of us are still stuck at home. If you can't make it to Mississippi, the next best thing, and it's pretty close to the physical experience, I think, is Ralph's new book, uh, W. Ralph Eubanks, Place Like Mississippi, beautifully written, full of silence and profundity, wonderful photographs. It's really one of the, the, the best looking books and the best written books uh, that, that I've, I've looked at over the year. It's really an achievement, um, Ralph. So congratulations on that. Um, so people have to have your book, Ralph. In addition, though, to a place like Mississippi, what would you suggest people read in these continuing, continuingly strange, surreal times that we live in? Well, I have to say a work of poetry, and, and that would be Reparations Now by Ashley M. Jones. I just heard her read this morning here at the Eudora Welty Literary Festival. She is going to become the Poet Laureate of Alabama in December, the first woman of color ever named to be Poet Laureate. The first um, Poet Laureate of Alabama was named in 1930. So the first person of color in nearly a century. Um, and there's a great poem in here that she read from this morning, uh, all y'all really from Alabama. Uh, and it's- We'll have to get her on the show. Do you know her? Did you meet her? I did meet her. I would be well, I would... now. Uh, now, now we're going to have to have her. You, you were introduced to me very kindly by um, uh, by Connor Town O'Neill, uh, and it's a good way, a good networking way of meeting the most interesting writers. So we're going to get her. But um, uh, W. Ralph Eubanks, real honor to have you on the show. Uh, thank you yeah, so thank much. You. And again, seriously, congratulations on this book. It's a wonderful achievement. And also congratulations to your publisher. They, they've really done huge justice to, to this complicated place, Mississippi. It deserves, the, the, the state and the book deserve each other. So, so congratulations to everyone. And thank you again. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you.